This is Design Driven, the podcast about using design thinking to build great products and lasting companies. Whether you're running a startup or trying something new inside a Fortune 1000, the tools, methods, and insights we talk about will help you create things people love. And now, your host, Jay Cornelius. Welcome back, everyone. I'm super excited to have Katrina Bautista with us today. She is the UX lead for the Shopify theme store. And if you know anything about Shopify, you know that it's growing rapidly. They have probably the best e-commerce platform out there. And the ecosystem is growing around that at almost as rapid of a pace, I think. Um, So Katrina, welcome to the show. I'm excited to chat with you today. How are you? How are things going? And what are you working on? I am just stoked to be here. I appreciate any chance to to meet people outside of my four walls, especially because we're getting so used to looking at our four walls lately in in these like unprecedented times, waiting for our more precedented times to come back. Um, But um, yeah, I'm I'm doing great. I'm calling you from like lovely gray, snowy Toronto, Canada. And so um, 2021 is a big year for Theme Store. Currently we're working on um, sort of bringing it more uh, to up to the kind of search experience and inspirational experience that merchants are starting to come to expect. And so that's the thing that I'm most excited that we're, that we're working on right now. To your point at the beginning, like the Shopify ecosystem, the thing that's the, the things that grew up around the fact that Shopify exists, so apps and the fact that other people can now make and sell themes and the, the way that people can now like make entire agencies of services just to support people in starting their Shopify business. Mm-hmm. Um, it's like something that I've been really passionate about, been working on it for probably for the last three years out of my five years at Shopify. Um, and so this year um, I'm focused, we're focusing on the theme store in terms of making it even easier for more um, partners like get their themes out there and help merchants find them. Like one of the things that I've been learning is that um, finding a theme isn't like finding uh, like a, t- a television. It's not the same kind of shopping experience. You don't go into Best Buy hoping to be inspired. You go into Best Buy being like, I have a problem. And the problem is that I don't have something to watch television on. Mm-hmm. But for a theme, it's a lot more like, I have this dream and I know that a theme is one of the ways that makes that dream visible and real to the pe- to the buyers I want to connect with. Mm-hmm. But how do I put that into words? Like, how does that fit into a search box? And it doesn't. So one of the most interesting UX problems that we're tackling coming up into the the next year in 2021 is if we took away this concept model of like verbal search, what are the other things that we could offer to a prospective merchant or a current merchant where it's closer to that? Is it something like um, showing them different visuals and, and helping them narrow that down? Is it something like immersing their data into demo experiences so they can be like, wow, my product catalog doesn't really work with this style of theme, even if on paper, it looks super pretty. So Mm -hmm. those are all things that are nonverbal at all. And so they won't fit into like a dribble screenshot. They won't fit into just like a static mock-up. It's something really juicy. It's something that's like interactive. And so that's why I'm really excited. Yeah. So it, it, it sounds like a much more kind of immersive experience, mm-hmm. right? Because someone is making an emotional decision on what their store, what their web presence is going to look like. Mm-hmm. And so, so your challenge uh, in, from our previous conversation is about 
making the process of someone who is onboarding with Shopify or maybe is already on platform with Shopify, making the experience of, of choosing and implementing a theme as easy and seamless as possible. That's one mm -hmm. side of it. But the other side is also making it easy for people who are creating themes to create something and get it into the market in a way that is compelling for the people who are building the stores. Mm-hmm. Yeah, one of the like really exciting things about my job is that I get to learn from partners who are even closer to merchant needs sometimes than I am. Like they are, are the, our current theme partners have such a tuned in radar when it comes to, I see a lot more of the specific industry struggling and there are, they're, they're beginning to come online in a way that, um, let's say in the past, it was mostly fashion, like fashion, fashion is a typical e-commerce industry. It's huge. It's like, it, it amounts to like a big, big chunk of most e-commerce platforms, customers, for example. But what about people who are like, like what we saw with like COVID people who offer food, food services, restaurants mm -hmm. and things like that. Like that's a different challenge. And for a while, a lot of themes weren't built to serve them. A lot more themes are built to be like, here's a size chart here. You can pick the colors of your t-shirt that doesn't apply to food items, perishable items, things that might need order right. notes and things like that. But um, so it's this great feedback cycle of um, people building themes saying, hey, I I can see all this opportunity, but I don't know if I can, I'm going to be able to, like, to show those feature sets or, or tell that story on the place where people come to get themes. So can we work together and say like, what is the best way to showcase a theme that isn't going to fall into these like major broad generic categories. So that's an interesting. Right. Yeah. So what's kind of fascinating to me about that is you've got customers who are trying to sell all types of different products mm -hmm. to all different types of people. And you have to find a way to kind of standardize that or make that something that is repeatable mm -hmm. um, and try to accommodate as many needs as, as possible in a, kind of a tight product package. So mm -hmm. how do you, go about discovering what those needs are from those, from those merchants. A lot of things. It's let me, let me give you, let me give you a couple of prompts. Like, are you yeah. doing, um, are you going out and doing research with people who are already on platform or people who are not on platform? Are you searching for people in any specific industries or product mm -hmm. types? I, um, I think it's more about um, for themes specifically, I think, one lens that we're applying is what do buyers want? Because at the end of the day, the themes that we provide is a window into the products and it's not, it's to convert people from window shoppers into buyers, but across different industries and geographies that can be very different. So for example, um, the uh, Japanese or non-English character set um, cultural market is very used to so quite, quite visual, like quite dense visuals in their um, shopping experiences, in their shopping websites, in their layouts. A North American sensibility for shopping will tend to have tons of white space, larger photos. And so those things might be totally in contrast with one another. So we need to encourage theme partner and encourage and grow theme partners who are like, actually, I understand the cultural sensibilities of, let's say, a Southeast Asian, Asia Pacific consumer. Here's the kinds of visual density that they expect. Here's what converts them, whether that's trust badges or more images or clearer pricing or something like that. And like grow that segment of themes. So for the merchants who want to have that particular buyer. So it's, 
it's what merchants are looking to Shopify for is, hey, you're the experts in e-commerce. You should know a lot about um, how to get people to add things to cart. But that's culturally very diverse. And sure. also it can be affected by how fast does the theme load? So how do we teach merchants who are really focused on products, product quality, inventory, just like running a business in general, like what is the minimum viable amount of um, sort of value judgment we can teach them to be like, okay, what does front-end performance mean to your business that doesn't also require you to be a front-end developer to understand things like a JavaScript load time or mm -hmm. um, this website has so many dependencies that actually when someone clicks add to cart, they're waiting there for you know, five seconds and those five seconds, they've opened another tab for a different shopping site and they've forgotten about your cart. Those right. are the kinds of things where it's like, it's this trade-off of like, how much as we can, as Shopify, can we automate away and make that invisible? So it's like, trust us and we will show up for that trust. We will like, if like, I love when merchants demand more from us and they're like, we're holding you to this quality bar. Shopify, I, I, I'm holding you this bar of like, give me the business intelligence, help me make those wise choices. Let me not spend time actually on shopify.com and let me focus on my customers and my business. And I will just trust you to do the time efficient stuff for me. And I, I really hold myself to that promise in some ways, because I think the anti goal is to have a lot of people visiting the theme store and just like, being really engaged and like having a long linger time there, but any time that they spend on the theme store is time that they're not spending running their business. So that's an anti-goal for me. So it's really important right. for me to always know what the trade-offs are. Like if one kind of attention span thing goes up, where is their attention being misdirected from where they should actually be focusing? Yeah, that's an, that's an interesting point about um, looking at metrics. People tend to to look at the one thing that they see, but not look at what the the other side of the coin is, so to speak. Right, mm -hmm. and you've got a lot of stuff going on there. Like you're trying to solve a couple of problems, both for merchants um, and solve those problems for the theme developers, so that they don't make the mistake that puts the merchant in an awkward situation of having too many things that load and slow down the transaction time and, mm -hmm. and so forth. So, um, it's, you're in kind of a, uh, uh, between a rock and a hard place, right? So how do you, how do you manage those trade-offs? Like what kind of conversations do you have with your team about how to manage that and, and keep it consistent with the quality standards that Shopify is known for? Mm -hmm. I, I appreciate like the size in some ways of Shopify, like um, there is so like there's there's this I don't know if it's like a businessism or something like that like a lot of companies do this where they say that they're highly like highly aligned but loosely coupled. I don't mm -hmm. know if like if you've heard that like sort mm -hmm. of come up in your previous episodes as well, um, but the like the fact that there's a whole theme infrastructure team at Shopify that focuses on performance and the developer tooling to make the, the good choice easy when it comes to development means that my UX team who works on the theme store can 100% be in, this, in the service of merchants and then like take what merchants need and, and then we take that and we ask more of the developer experience. So I'll give you an example. Um, Merchants actually want more ways to tell their story and merchandise their products in a flexible way. They, they, they want to be able to have this balance of just like on some, some parts, I want to have 
like image heavy editorialization of a specific product. And in other times they might want um, something really lightweight where it's like, this is a Kickstarter. I only have one product or whatever. So how do we take that merchant need and feed it into how themes are built so that the theme itself can pick up on that diverse range of content where it's like, it could be image heavy one day and non-image heavy the next. And mm. for that page to not show the weaknesses, like if you over index on one kind of thing. So if you over index on like for this theme to look right, you have to have hundreds of images so that the mosaic sits perfectly. Mm -hmm. And that, and so that over like, and so that suits a specific niche of merchant. But then if I'm a merchant who I sell three things, I sell three of the best soy candles in the world that will take you back to your childhood. <laughs> I don't have a hundred images of that. Right. So in the middle is the theme marketplace. And our role is both to tell, like help developers understand we have two, like lots of different kinds of merchants for whom those two archetypes of like image heavy or not image heavy work. On the merchant side, we need to help them by saying, don't get tripped up on like, oh, I love the color pink. So I'm only gonna choose like themes that have the color pink in it, because actually right. what we need to help you educate you on is work with the stuff you have. If you have a catalog of three items, you only have very few images, certain themes will make those three images shine and you will, and, and just you, you, it takes five minutes to set up and you will be set. But if you try, if you try something on that doesn't actually suit you, you will, and you'll spend a long time tailoring it and recustomizing it. That's not an effective use of your money. It's not an effective use of your time. I parallel to no one walks into the gap to buy a t-shirt and then walk out and be like, I'm going to go to Savile Row now and have this t-shirt tailored for me several times. Like you, right. like, unless that's what you want, there are people who are like, I want something extremely tailored. I want something that is high end. I want something that is, I can pick up the phone and someone will support me in every moment and stuff like that. But like, that's that's very different from the person who walks in being like, it's a different kind of I customer. need to go. Yeah. Right. Yeah. It's a different value expectation, right? Mm -hmm. so if you're getting something for, you know, I'm not sure what the range of costs for a Shopify theme is, but I'm guessing it's somewhere from free to hundreds of dollars. And for free, you probably shouldn't expect a whole lot of customization, but for hundreds of dollars, you might. And so, so balance of figuring out what that, that, that value proposition is for each individual theme is probably challenging. And depends on what the theme developer is offering. And also uh, free does not mean bad. Any, right. sh any Shopify made theme is going to be free because we want merchants to have the best start on things right. and not have to pay an additional cost to Shopify. Like we as Shopify are saying, trust us with your business month to month. You could in theory use only Shopify made things. Most of them are free and you will be able to succeed as a business. But when we think about ecosystem, and like this is the part that makes me really excited is Shopify is also realistic to the point where we're, we're really big, but we don't know each person, each merchant individually. And that's sure. why the ecosystem is so important because there's always going to be partners who make apps and themes and services who can make that tailored experience, who can, who can really say, no, we are a agency based in Singapore. We understand kind of the Asia Pacific market and shopper. All of our themes are like sort of geared towards that. We also offer, we maybe offer support in, in their language in a way that 
Shopify at its scale can can provide lots of support, but not tailored support. So yeah, 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 it makes sense. It's a, it's a tough balance to strike. Mm-hmm. So I'm curious, as your like day to day work, how much of it is focused on um, like getting the teams within Shopify aligned on various standards and tools and systems? How much of it is thinking about uh, the, the customers that you're serving and looking at you know, specific challenges they have and trying to solve those versus how much of it is looking forward and trying to build things that the market might not even know that it needs yet? I, I think specifically as a UX lead, like I, I, I started at Shopify as a product designer and like in some ways grew as Shopify grew. I worked my way up through there and I see my, my role now as a UX lead as someone helping to set the vision in some ways and like dream that size, but still keep in touch with the rest of the company. That is, that is my day-to-day as well as supporting the other UXers that includes content designers, front-end developers and product designers in my team. And so I think of it as um, I pave the path and smooth the path. And I, and the thing that brings me joy is to see the other UXers on my team, just like rocket velocity run down that mm-hmm. path. And so the day-to-day would probably be that I think some of like UX leadership is earned through tenure, like understanding the company deeply because you've met a lot of the people here and you've made those relationships and you understand the motivations of the different teams around you. What are they building? What is their goal? And, and then I bring that back to the team being like, here's your raw materials. We have so many other teams building all this cool stuff. What can we build alongside that or on top of that? So whether that's on top of a cool new infrastructure thing and an, an optimization of liquid templating, or um, we're unlocking multiple currencies for more markets. What does that mean for us? Like, how can we give those features in a theme to a merchant so they can benefit from that? So my role in some ways is to collect the best, freshest ingredients. I bring it back to the kitchen of the UX team. And then I'm just like, y'all are master chefs. So what are we going to do so that this, like make use of this best freshness of data, of customer, mm-hmm. um, of merchant insights. So merchant profiles have changed year over year based on the economy, based on the state of the world. And we always only have like quite a small window to act on that information in a way that is timely for that information. And so I, what I see my role is, is to say like, we have this freshness window. Here's the best way we can use this freshness window. And then I'm looking ahead seasonally to be like in November, we have like retail has seasons. So in November, we have like Black Friday, Cyber Monday season. We have Diwali in um, South Asian regions, like other kinds of consumer, high consumer spending times in the year. Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, what are our upcoming opportunities there? So we're ready for that. And like in that way, I, I, it gives me energy. Like I've had, I've worked in other software companies where maybe there isn't that level of seasonality. Like, so there is this, and so, um, that's really energizing as well. So coming back to your original question of like, how do I break up my time? I would say that, um, 40% of my time is based on supporting people to do their best work. So holding them to a high bar of UX, um, doing sort of coaching with them for their sort of career growth. And then 60% of my time is spent gathering out there, gathering all of these types of like intelligence ingredients. So whether that's like business intelligence internally, of just like, what are the top things that people are shipping in Shopify that we can turn in, we can maximize that impact. 
or going out to merchants with the help of our research team um, to be like, what are the challenges? And also like, I, I, I try to save time for what I just call like MacGyver research. One of my favorite things to do is look at how do merchants hack Shopify? And I don't mean hacking in a kind of like, let's enter the matrix hacking. I mean, how are they using an existing theme or an existing Shopify feature in a weird way? Because what that always tells me is like, we've come up short on something. A merchant has come up with a rough idea of what they actually want. And they're trying to make our product do that thing. Mm -hmm. So whether that's like merchants who are um, making their own little announcement bars on the top, or they're trying to um, use JavaScript to say like, switch the look of different pages based on like, I'm a pet, let's say I'm a pet store. And like, if I know that my customer is like a bird owner over a cat owner, I want my product pages to highlight different things. These are all things that merchants maybe are hacking on their own. And so this cues me to say, okay, what about this can be productized, systematized and be offered to more people because this is a great idea coming right from our merchants. And what we're doing is not helping them make that um, stress-free, efficient, easy. If we took their hack and made it and added some magic to it, could we give it back to them and say like, hey, what you wanted that took you two hours, we worked on it, we tried to make it good, it will now take you five minutes. Those are the things that I live for and I love to give that back to people, but it comes from having to go out and look for it. Yeah, no, and I think that's beautiful. That's, that's like a golden nugget of, of the way UX should be done is go and observe what people are currently doing mm-hmm. and find a way to make it easier for them. Yeah, definitely. I think I, I think it's bad to think that we are the experts on things as opposed to the best people to smooth things out or translate them. Like I think right. merchants will always be the experts in their own business. The thing that they might not be expert on is how to use scale to their advantage, how to use automation to their advantage. And if, and I often ask my team these questions of like, what is the most repetitive task in this flow that we're looking at that we should be automating away because it's not valuable for the merchant to have to repeat it? That's just, that's right. Do you have any things that I'm curious now, like as we're talking about this, like are there kind of key questions that always seem to work to draw out like insights for, for when you talk to people or talk to clients where, cause I, I'm just a big believer in like, you ask the right question, you will get the best answer. But if you ask like a soft question an overly broad question or the wrong question, you don't, you won't get the answer that you need, you know? Yeah. So if, if you're, if you're thinking about when we do research for mm. customers um, or for our clients and we're, we're talking to their customers, Mm-hmm. Um, often it's a matter of first understanding, kind of orienting yourself in their worldview and figuring out w- what it is that they're bringing to the relationship and what shapes the types of ways that they want to interact with product. And so that's, you know, getting some general background and some things. Um, there's a few psychology principles that we'd like to rely on. Uh, one of which is that people don't like to be judged for their opinions mm-hmm. or for their skills. Mm-hmm. Um, and so if you ask the question in a way that frees them from judgment, but allows them to tell you the truth, um, it, it's really powerful. So an example of that is what do you think other people are doing to solve this problem? Mm-hmm. Because people don't, because of ego, right? We all have ego. Um, and because of, uh, we can't think about, we, we can't understand what's going on in somebody else's head. 
the only way to get there is to think about what you already know. And so people, when presented with that question, will tell you what they would do, but it removes them from being judged for it. Mm-hmm. And so there's you know a couple little tricks like that. I don't want to say trick, but there's a couple little um, ways that you can phrase things and ways mm-hmm. that you can dig into things that um, help free people from judgment and help them to you know to express what they really need mm-hmm. without going at it directly. Yeah, for sure. I I see. I find that fascinating because it's so true that. Even like, um, you know, that expression where it's like, it's turtles all the way down. Um, For me, it's design all the way down. You can Mm -hmm. design an interface as much as you design a conversation, as much as you design a question, as much as you design the environment around which someone will feel comfortable enough in your research study to actually give you the real answer, not the, like what they perceive as the correct answer. Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Because people will often try to, um, to make you happy. You know, they're, they're going to try to uh, give you the answer that they think you're looking for rather than the answer that is the most truthful. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we, we break it down in terms of um, kind of questions to help lay the foundation and then exploratory questions. And then we have refinement questions. So one of the nice little tricks that, that we use is uh, when somebody starts talking about something that's interesting, it's like, oh, tell me more about that. And then, so I, let me make sure I understood that correctly and repeat it back to them. What am I missing? Mm-hmm. Right? Help me understand this better because people also love to share things. They love to talk about um, and kind of teach people things or, or show what they know, show what they're proud of. Mm-hmm. The tricky line there for us is, getting them to share things that they're excited about or share things that, that, um, that they're proud of. And, but then also share some of the things that they feel vulnerable around where they, they don't feel like they know something or they feel like they're not doing it the right way. So you, in that case, you have to be really, really, um, aware of and sensitive to where those soft spots are and then shift the, the, the mode of questioning to, um, ask them what they think other people are doing when it's a soft spot, but what are you doing when it's something they have confidence in? Mm-hmm. So it, it's, it's a fine line. It's an art. Yeah, for sure. And like what you're bringing up as well, reminds me of another thing, which is like, how do we balance the qualitative responses that we get from every day from merchants, whether that's through their support ticket requests or, or their direct responses to our interviews and each type of input data gives a different side of that story. Mm-hmm. What people say in an interview, for example, is very different from what they ask for help with. So another source of data for my team is um, what do people call into our support frontline actually about when it comes to when they're struggling with a theme? Like when people ask a support advisor, um, how is how, how do I make this theme do X, Y, and Z? When we see that at, a, at, at volume, at scale, we see thousands of people asking the same thing. And let's say that people are asking about something which actually is built into the theme. What that is a cue for my team is like, oh, we're not doing a good job at the theme education or theme listing level to say, actually what you've been asking for all along is a feature of every theme on Shopify what have we done so that we haven't somehow made that more obvious or clearer to people? And then, so it's like, 
We've got the qualitative direct interview answers. We've got what people ask for help with from support frontline. And then we also look at sort of quantitative behavior of just like, what are people actually clicking through to? Are they not hitting specific information? Are they actually getting to that information? So what it might look like in a click-through map it's like people seem to be landing on the specific aspect of information. And then, but on the qualitative side, people continue to be confused by it. Mm-hmm. So that is like clear, there's a clear quantitative measure. And if we only stop there, it'd be like, sweet engagement, viewership, got it. And it's like, nah, but then the comprehension is not there because it's not comprehension isn't measurable by click tracking. So right. always being able to find the counterpoint of any data point, whether that's qualitative or quantitative with its sort of cousin, and then give it and rounding out that picture, asking more from our data to say like, if you took any one of these things alone, that's not a whole meal. You gotta have the whole meal. Otherwise it's right. just a snack. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, otherwise it just doesn't work. Yeah. Yeah, so I'm, I'm curious how you are approaching, you and your team are approaching the balance of demographics, psychographics, the, the behavioral things, um, and then looking at, like you mentioned earlier, um, dwell time on a page, right? Mm-hmm. That might be great if you're, you're trying to uh, gauge if they're actually reading all the copy, but mm-hmm. it could also be a signal that they're confused and don't know what to do next. Mm-hmm. So how do you um, how do you put all that together to make decisions on on what to build and, and what to change? I value, and I think Shopify values a thing called bias towards action. And mm-hmm, I, sure. I would say I would layer that in with bias towards measurable and reversible action. Mm. There's, there's uh, two types of decisions or two types of risk exposure for the team. And we don't like, we don't, we don't bandy around these like consultancy terms, but like when it comes down to it, it's like this is, is, is something we're about to ship a one-way door or is it a two-way door? And what I mean by this is, we want, let's say, to improve um, how much we consolidate certain information. Let's say we say um, we're going to reduce the word to image ratio so there's less words and more imagery to demonstrate something. Mm-hmm. Before we ship that, there's a lot of ways to make that a two-way door. One of them is to do a percentage rollout. Another way is to to add a tempor- like a temporal limit to it, being like we will put we will put this out into the world for two weeks and then take it off and then measure that. So, or um, other ways that this could be a two-way door is we could show it only to support advisors internally. So so like because our support advisors talk to hundreds of people on a daily basis, they are a pretty good, but not exact proxy of what a merchant might want and a merchant from a lot of different backgrounds and states. And so another way to make it like a, a risk de-risked or reversible is to show it internally first to people who represent the merchant. But a one-way door would be something like, um, we are now going to hold everyone to a higher accessibility compliance standard than ever before. Mm -hmm. We are going to uh, computationally measure um, color ratios. And if you fail that color ratio test, you are not on the theme store anymore. And sometimes to get the biggest impact, we need to make those kind of one-way decision doors. But I think if, you, if this was a hallway, we should have passed through several two-way doors before we get to the one-way door. Right, right. Yeah, mm-hmm. so make decisions relatively easy, reversible, or, mm-hmm. or adjustable. Yeah, and, and create, I think, a psychologically safe environment on the team to say, 
we will be willing to reverse this decision if it is reversible and it is not an admission of failure. It does not somehow make you a worse designer. If anything, it makes you a better designer to be able to plan for this kind of read the room, read the risk, accept the risk, and still be able to walk it back if needed, because we plan for it. We plan for the good outcome and the bad outcome. Right. So it sounds like that's making small changes in iterations and not overly committing to anything uh, before you can test it or understand how you're going to measure it. Right. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Another thing I like to call is like, we should call it the anti-surprise law. Like if you are, (laughs) if you're, if what you're shipping is going to start feeling like a major product launch and a surprise, that's too big. It's not iterative enough. Like we, we, we're not Apple. We're not going to walk out in our black turtlenecks at WWDC and be like, and one more thing. Like, no, if anything, I, I love the idea of a very humble, but very frequent shipping cycle where nothing is a surprise to our merchants because they held us to a high quality bar. We just continually deliver and hum along at this high quality bar and nothing. And while that's not, you know, the kind of like superstar designer glory myth that we're sold in school sometimes that is such, it's just a much more sustainable and gentle way of doing design for everyone involved. Yeah. Yeah. No, hundred percent, hundred percent agree. Great stuff. Great stuff. Katrina, thank you so much. This has been a a great conversation. We could talk about this stuff for hours, months, days, years. <laughs> I, I love these conversations. So thank you for spending some time today and, and, and chatting about it. Um, some great things for, for people to take away and hopefully apply in their day-to-day work. So if, um, if somebody's listening and they want to learn more about you, they want to get in touch with you, what's the best way to do that? Um, I, I really love um, getting uh, Twitter reach outs. If you have any uh, great design links, funny TikToks, I'm too old for TikTok, but too young to die. So send me those funny TikToks. <laughs> I'm, I'm uh, catbuilt on Twitter. Uh, and that's probably the best way to reach me. Um, and, uh, I hope to make lots more internet friends, um, on, if you look for Katrina Bautista on LinkedIn, this is how Jay found me. I actually really love having chats. Um, so another way to reach me, let's be professional friends on the internet. Thanks. To LinkedIn. <laughs> there you go. Yeah, and we'll <laughs> link all that stuff up in the show notes. So, um, mm-hmm. it should make it easy for people to, to find you and reach out again, Katrina, thank you so much. Uh, I look forward to our next conversation. And uh, eventually when the world becomes kind of, you know, safe again, you know, chat in person. Mm -hmm. Definitely. (laughs) Thank you. All right. Thanks again. That's it for today. Design Driven is brought to you by Nine Labs, guiding innovators and product teams through executing their vision. Find out how they can help improve your digital products at NineLabs.com. Have comments, questions, or an idea you'd like us to cover? Point your browser to designdriven.biz and click Contact Us at the top of your screen. We'd love to hear from you. Tell your friends and colleagues about the Design Driven Pod. Post on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, or send them an email and tell them to go to designdriven.biz or wherever they find their podcasts. Until next time, remember what Thomas Watson, founder of IBM, said, Good design is good business.